Well, today we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 13. Pastor Enro concluded his sermon last week around verse 17. And so we will pick up from verse 18. But as we read this, however, I want to start in verse 12 just for a little bit of context, just to remember where we're at. Hear now the word of God. This is John 13. We'll start in verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, So, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning, against, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, as we now gather here today and open your word, may your presence be among us. Pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word. You would guide us as we now dig into this message. And we ask that you transform us by your spirit through the word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, you know, something that has been weighing heavily on my mind in the past few years, and, I, and I'm pretty sure I've shared this probably with most of you at some point, is that I am increasingly convinced that one of the most significant challenges in our nation today isn't with the pagans. It's not with the guy that lives across the street and doesn't go to church, doesn't even claim to be a Christian. Rather, it's with those who profess Christianity yet advance various agendas that contradict the Bible. I believe they pose the biggest threat in our country. And just to give you a few examples of things that, the reason why I've been thinking this over the years, things that I've seen, you saw, for example, the promotion of these racially charged narratives, like those associated with Black Lives Matter or critical race theory. You got neo-Marxism being spread under the guise of loving your neighbor. Now, another example would be the promotion of all this LGBTQ agenda, again, under the guise of loving your neighbor. I have shared with you before that if you, right here right here in town, if you go to the Pride in the Park event that they have every year, you will find multiple numerous church booths there supporting the cause, and even drag queens singing hymns for about an hour. Another example would be what we saw during the shutdowns. You saw Christian after Christian making the case on social media that gathering together with the saints to worship God on the Lord's Day is not a necessity. But even before the shutdowns, how many professing Christians have you heard argue against Sabbath keeping? I know a ton of them. And so it's just been insane to see all of these agendas and nonsense that have been argued in the name of Christ. And it got me thinking over the past few years that this really is our biggest threat. It's these other quote-unquote Christians. It's not, it's not the pagan guy across the street. And then I came across this quote from Calvin as I was studying this text for this sermon. Commenting on verse 18 where our Lord states that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Calvin writes, to lift up the heel is a metaphorical expression and means to attack a person in an unperceived manner under the pretense of friendship so as to gain an advantage over him when he is not on his guard. Now what Christ suffered, who is our head and our pattern, we who are his members ought to endure patiently. And indeed, it has usually happened in the church in almost every age. It has had no enemies more inveterate than the members of the church. And therefore, that believers may not have their minds disturbed by such atrocious wickedness, let them accustom themselves early to endure the attacks of traitors. And when I read that, I was like, yep, there it is. Calvin hits it, the nail right on the head. The church in almost every age has had no enemies more inveterate, that is, more deeply ingrained or longstanding than members of the church. And that being the case, Calvin says, then we better accustom ourselves early to endure the attacks of traitors. Now, <clears throat> there are a number of things, and this is true with any block of text we deal with. There are quite a few things that we can highlight from our text today here in John 13. But after reading that quote from Calvin and just my mind being where it's been for the past few years, it was hard for me to want to address anything else than this. 
And perhaps when Enro comes back next week, he may want to tackle some other things from the same block of text, or he may want to just move on. I'll leave that up to him. But today, I wanted to highlight this point from our text and talk about it a little bit. I want to speak to this point of getting accustomed to enduring attacks from traitors. And I want to do so by focusing in on two people, Judas and Peter. So I want you to stop now and think about this Passover feast that's described in our text. I want you to envision what's going on here. John informs us in verse 21 that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, we might wonder how John knew that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Well, for starters, John was present. He was an eyewitness to this. But then secondly, Jesus must have displayed visible signs of distress. It's important to recall that Jesus, while being divine, is also fully human. He experienced the complete range of human emotions, all while remaining free from sin. And so his spirit was perturbed, his anguish was visible, and this caught the attention of the disciples. So why was he in such a state of agitation? Well, first and foremost, we should bear in mind that he was aware of the impending suffering that he was about to undergo. His moment had arrived. He was fully aware of the imminent agony and death that awaited him. And so naturally, this was deeply troubling for him. However, there's an additional aspect highlighted in this passage. He knew he would be betrayed by one of his 12 disciples. Again, while it holds true that Jesus was Emmanuel, that is God among us, we must also remember his full humanity. Just as you would experience profound distress from the betrayal of a close friend, Jesus was similarly distressed, yet without yielding to sin. And in this passage, Jesus clearly points out Judas as the one who will betray him. And what this does is remind us of the potential presence of darkness, even within the visible community of God's people. And this is a little sidetrack here. Do you understand what I mean when I say visible community or visible church? As our confession states, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, and shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, that is not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, together with their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So the invisible church are all those whom God has chosen to save and will be saved. The visible church is the visible expression of that invisible church on earth in the here and now, made up of those who profess the true religion together with their children. In other words, we can point out who the church is here on earth by pointing to those who make profession of faith along with their children. However, and this is what's important to understand, whether or not that profession runs deeper 
and is the fruit of an actual possession of true saving faith by that person is something none of us could know with absolute 100% certainty. And again, what this text is reminding us of is that there was and will be those within the visible professing community of believers who do not actually possess true saving faith. Jesus raises the matter that one among his very own followers will act to betray him when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This expression, truly, truly, is intended to capture your focus. Jesus is emphasizing here. And so pause, listen closely to what he's saying. What I'm about to convey to you holds significance. Among you, someone will deliver me into the hands of those who are hostile to me. Right? That's the essence of the term betray, to deliver a person into the hands of another. Now, this statement surely intensified the already existing tension in the room by a significant degree. At this point, every disciple's mind must have been racing, wondering, could it be me? Peter, assuming the role of the group's leader, signaled to the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, prompting him to inquire about the identity of the betrayer. Now, evidently, we read that John was reclining at table at Jesus' side. The Greek conveys a more detailed image than the English does. Specifically, John was actually reclining against Jesus' chest. But in any case, he was reclining at the table alongside Jesus, and he leaned back, posing the question, Lord, who is it? Which individual will betray you? And in response, Jesus stated, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, subsequently following Judas taking the bread, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus instructed him, what you are about to do, do quickly. It's important to note that Jesus only reveals this information to John at this point, leaving the other disciples still uncertain about the betrayer's identity. They don't even remotely suspect Judas at this point. Because when Jesus tells Judas what you're going to do, do quickly, the other disciples don't jump to the conclusion that Judas is the betrayer. Instead, they assume that Jesus might be instructing Judas, who was in charge of the money bag, to either make preparations for the feast or give something to the poor, which was in line of customary practice of giving alms to the poor on the night of the Passover. It's clear that Judas had managed to deceive all of them. Indeed, the crucial aspect here is that Judas was well acquainted with his own intentions, and even more significantly, Jesus was fully aware of Judas's heart. And at this point, John also became privy to Judas's true nature. If you recall, in previous instances, Jesus had indicated that one of them was a devil. In John 6, 70, for instance, Jesus responded, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? However, in this particular situation, Jesus gets specific. This revelation to John from Jesus highlighted that Jesus had foreknowledge of his betrayer's identity. In fact, he goes on to state, I am not speaking of all of you. 
I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, the significance of all this lies in the fact that it aligns perfectly with some themes that we have already seen in this gospel, which include election, particular redemption, effectual calling, and preservation. First, there's election. The revelation of Judas's betrayal to John highlights the concept of divine election, which asserts that God has chosen particular individuals for both salvation and specific roles within his overarching plan. Here, Jesus' advanced knowledge shared with John serves as a manifestation of God's sovereign choice and understanding of those who play a part. It is stressed that God the Father predestined certain individuals for salvation even prior to the creation of the world. And this ultimate goal defined the mission of the Son to descend and redeem those entrusted to him by the Father. We have seen this multiple times in this gospel and we see it here again in chapter 13. Then secondly, there's particular redemption. The Judas incident here further sheds light upon this concept, highlighting the precise and deliberate nature of Christ's redemptive mission. Jesus' revelation of the betrayer's identity serves as a reminder that even within his select group of disciples, there exist individuals who will spurn Christ in his work. Concerning the notion of specific redemption, the Gospel of John explicitly conveys Jesus' purpose to lay down his life for his own. In John 10, 15, you remember we saw where Jesus asserted, I lay down my life for the sheep. His sacrifice was aimed at those individuals specifically entrusted to him by the Father. And his objective was to reconcile those of his chosen flock without extending this atonement to others. He bore the weight of the sins belonging to those individuals granted to him by the Father encompassing the entire world spanning across both Jews and Gentiles. And then third, there's effectual calling. John's gospel underscores the concept of effectual calling, which implies that God's calling to the elect is not merely just an invitation, but a transformative and irresistible work in the believer's heart. This disclosure to John about Judas illustrates how God's call is efficacious and penetrates even into the depths of human intentions and actions. The Gospel of John distinctly conveys that it is those individuals whom the Father draws to repentance through the influence of the Holy Spirit that will come to Christ. In John 10, 27, Jesus states, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This verse highlights those chosen by God respond to the compelling call of Jesus, marked by a transformative journey of hearing, of recognizing, and then devoutly following Christ. And then there's preservation. The fact that Jesus knew and revealed the identity of the betrayer in advance highlights the theme of preservation. That is the idea that God preserves and protects his chosen ones. Despite the presence of betrayal 
and darkness. God's sovereignty is demonstrated by his ability to reveal and to work through these circumstances for his ultimate purposes. Furthermore, not only will Christ's flock unwaveringly adhere to him, but they will also be safeguarded. Once again, referring to John 10, 27 and following, when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, he goes on to say, and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, why am I highlighting all of these doctrines from this text? Because the situation involving Judas has the potential to create uncertainty in our understanding of these matters. We may find ourselves pondering if indeed some individual was designated by the Father to be saved, and if Christ's sacrifice was intended for their sins, and if it holds true that Jesus has successfully fulfilled the mission assigned by the Father to rescue all those who are entrusted to him, then what do we do about Judas? Certainly raises questions, doesn't it? But I want you to understand this, beloved. Jesus did not lose control over Judas. Judas didn't escape Jesus' hands, so to speak. His betrayal of Jesus didn't happen due to a slip-up or a sudden departure from Jesus' care. Rather, it occurred because Judas, from his heart, never genuinely belonged to Christ. From the very start, he was a devil. Again, Jesus had previously indicated that among the 12 disciples, one was the devil. And in this story now, he explicitly names Judas and shares this information with John, ensuring that there is a witness to this revelation. And while informing all the disciples about the presence of a betrayer, Jesus privately discloses to John that it will be Judas in accordance with chapter 13, verse 19, so that when this event unfolds, unfolds, faith may be strengthened in recognizing Jesus' identity. For he states, when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Again, let's understand the lesson that's conveyed here in Judas' betrayal. Jesus stands as the ultimate authority over the church. He is sovereign over all, but he's especially sovereign over the church itself. As he builds his church, he efficaciously guides the elect to salvation by means of the gospel being proclaimed, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he also ensures the preservation of his people. And while we expect challenges from the outside that affect us, internal issues can be even more troubling for believers. Dealing with problems from within tends to disturb us on a deeper level compared to challenges that are coming from the world around us. However, this narrative of Judas serves as a reminder to us that Christ holds dominion over the church. He possesses the capacity to establish and uphold the church despite both external and internal enemies. He's aware of those who belong to him. Apostates do not catch him by surprise. He remains unshaken by figures like Judas. In the realm of eternity, the church will be unsullied 
Yet in the present age, the visible church will encompass a mixture of genuine believers and those who are not. The presence of unbelievers and false teachings might catch us off guard, but they do not surprise Christ. The actions of individuals like Judas may disrupt us and burden our hearts, but they will not obstruct God's intentions. As Jesus declared in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so I believe the intent behind the narrative of Judas is to reassure us that Christ holds ultimate authority over his church. Functioning as the all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing ruler of everything. And while it is undeniable that darkness may occasionally infiltrate our visible community of believers, we can find solace in the fact that Christ remains sovereign and remains unshaken. Observe, observe here that once Judas received the morsel from Jesus and departed to carry out his treacher, treacherous act, John then introduces a little subtle observation. He merely notes in verse 30, and it was night. Now, while describing it as nighttime is factually undoubtedly accurate, the question arises, why did John choose to include this little detail? What significance lies in the fact that it was nighttime? Well, consider the reoccurring theme we've seen throughout this gospel of light and darkness. Jesus is famously referred to as the light of the world. Individuals are encouraged to walk in the light. Jesus told his disciples to carry out the Father's work while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. This theme of light and darkness, day and night, permeates John's gospel. And now, in a straightforward manner, John informs us that it was night. Right? Darkness has enveloped everything. Judas has definitively turned away from the light and has gone off into the abyss. Furthermore, the era of Jesus' personal and public ministry has come to a close. No more miraculous signs will be performed and the spreading of truth to the world is suspended. Yet this marks the hour of Jesus' suffering the words, and it was night, carry more significance than a mere historical observation. They symbolize a significant shift in both Christ's ministry and the trajectory of John's gospel, marking the transition from daylight to darkness. But it's also important, as we've observed Judas now, it's important that we observe that darkness affects more than just Judas within this narrative. Jesus foretells the actions of two of his disciples in this story. While Judas would ultimately betray Jesus, we are informed that Peter, on the other hand, would deny him on three occasions. And this serves as a reminder that even in the hearts of genuinely faithful Christians, darkness can find a place. Recall that when Peter asked Jesus to cleanse his feet, not just his feet, but also his hands and head, how did Jesus respond? He stated, 
The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus declared Peter to be clean. The one who remained unclean was Judas. Peter was already clean and didn't need a full washing. Only his feet required cleansing. However, in verse 38, Jesus addresses Peter saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow, crow till you have denied me three times. And it's noteworthy to emphasize that the same emphatic phrase, truly, truly, that was used to predict Judas's betrayal of Christ is also now employed to foretell Christ or Peter's triple denial of Christ. And so when you hear all this, you might be torn between what is more astonishing, the fact that an individual spent three years with Jesus and still betrayed him to those who wished him harm, or the surprise that the leader of this group, one considered clean, would, during Jesus' time of suffering, disavow any connection with his Lord on three distinct occasions. Beloved, can you perceive that darkness can prevail even within the heart of a genuine Christian? Consider Peter, a sincere follower of Christ, declared clean, and yet he would falter significantly. And so let's briefly reflect on what this passage reveals to us about Peter. After Judas had departed, Jesus began to address the situation in verse 31, affirming, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's intriguing how Jesus discusses his impending hour of suffering. He views this time of darkness as a means of glorification for the Son of Man. Through this period of trial, both the Father and the Son would experience glorification simultaneously. So while our perception of Christ's suffering and the crucifixion might primarily focus on the darkness, Jesus perceives it as the hour of his glory. This hour of glory is significant because it signifies the fulfillment of the Father's will. It showcases the pinnacle of God's love and justice. Moreover, it marks the triumphant conquest over sin, death, and Satan by Christ to the cross. The suffering that Christ endured was veiled in darkness due to the wickedness that surrounded him. Yet from that shadowy and dark context emerges the radiant glory of God manifested through Jesus Christ. In verse 33, Jesus conveyed little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I'm, come, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now there were additional statements following this, but it's worth observing that it was the context of this verse, 33, that captured Peter's attention. In verse 36, Simon Peter said, And Lord, where are you going? You see, Peter's confusion persisted regarding Jesus' intended destination. And Jesus responded, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus, of course, here was alluding to his forthcoming death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. And while Peter would not immediately accompany him, he would eventually do so. 
And it appears that Peter began to grasp the essence of Jesus' message as he expressed, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's words certainly carry a boldness, don't they? He expresses himself with confidence, making grand assertions. And in response, Jesus addresses him, saying, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Beloved, it becomes evident that Peter needed a little dose of humility. Perhaps he had fallen to pride. His declaration was not aligned with thy will be done, nor was it a plea for the Lord's sustenance. Instead, he boldly proclaimed, I will lay down my life for you. Yet it becomes apparent that his inner resolve was not as steadfast as his outward demeanor. And so now direct your attention to these parallel presentations of Judas and Peter. For Judas, you have this. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then for Peter, you have this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The gravity of both of their sins is unquestionable here. However, there exists a distinction between the two men. Judas chose to betray Jesus and never sought redemption, while Peter denied Jesus yet would later repent. Judas, it appears, carried out his betrayal from a heart engulfed in complete darkness. On the other hand, Peter's denial stemmed from a momentary lapse of strength, revealing the presence of darkness within his heart, yet he was ultimately aligned with the light. Peter stumbled. But Judas failed. And when you contemplate Jesus' foresight regarding these two men, Judas' act of betrayal and Peter's instance of denial, do you not sense an underlining truth about the nature of Christ's church here? It becomes apparent that the church, as the body of Christ, will grapple with trials. Sin will loom as a potential menace to the church. The congregation will encounter an internal struggle with sin. Amidst the community that aligns with Christ and his followers, there will inevitably emerge those who, despite their apparent association, lack a genuine connection to Christ. They do not truly belong to him. And so this introduces a delicate situation as the church becomes susceptible to internal challenges. Darkness can infiltrate even within the realm of the visible church of God. It can do so amongst the faithful. And there may be individuals who resemble goats mingling with sheep or weeds intermingling with wheat. Furthermore, regarding those who genuinely belong to Christ, they too will grapple with sin, sometimes of a significant nature. Despite being aligned with the light and considered clean, as we saw with Peter, the shadow of darkness remains a potential threat. The impurities of the flesh linger even within those who genuinely belong 
to Christ. And so it's very important for us to acknowledge these things. How frequently do we encounter people who, even self-professed Christians, who express reluctance to join a church due to the presence of hypocrites? How many times have you heard that from people? Well, two key points need to be addressed here. First, it's important to acknowledge that certain churches have indeed become overran by sin and hypocrisy to the extent that Christ warns of potentially removing their lampstand as we read in the book of Revelation. So occasionally such complaints hold validity. However, more often than not, those who refrain from joining a church due to its perceived sinfulness have misconstrued the nature of Christ's church. They might be harboring unrealistic expectations, anticipating the present-day church to mirror what it will eventually become in eternity. Beloved, nowhere in the Bible is it asserted that Christ's church will attain perfect purity in the here and now. The church will persist in its struggle against sin until the Lord's return when he renews all things. We yearn for the day devoid of sin. Yet until then, we must anticipate a continual conflict. And this battle encompasses those who profess Christ but lack true allegiance and an internal struggle within ourselves as we are being allured by the world. And let's be clear here also, this perspective does not imply that we should be lenient towards sin. Rather, what it underscores is that we shouldn't be caught off guard by its presence in the church. Beloved, you must not lose heart or faith when we witness sin in the visible community of God's church. Despite the occasional disorder, Christ remains the master of the church. Even sincere Christians wrestle with sin. The Christian journey is anything but a leisurely stroll. It is a strenuous battle. It is characterized by both external and internal struggles. Consider how Paul described his experiences in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians 5, he said, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And so one of the most detrimental attitudes that we can adopt is to approach the church assuming it is entirely pure or that its members are entirely faultless. Such an idea doesn't exist. There's no church, visible church anywhere on this earth that embodies such perfection. And if you encounter a claim, a church that claims such, run. Because God's going to humble them. As individuals in Christ, we have been cleansed and purified by the sacrifice of Christ's blood. Yet even the process of conforming us to Christ's image is ongoing throughout our whole lives. And it is marked by a continual struggle. 
And so how we navigate the time between Christ's first and second comings, or how should we? Considering the inclination towards sin among his people, the temptation might be, you might be thinking, well, forget the church. I'm done with it. I'm off. I'm going to walk this path alone. And many people have done it. However, what does Christ command us to do here in this text? Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Beloved, have you ever considered the timing of Jesus' command here? He's giving this command right in the middle of turmoil. Here he is predicting that one of them is going to betray him, and then he even speaks of even Peter, their leader, who's going to deny him three times. It appears that everything is unraveling. The disciples are now grappling with suspicions among themselves, pondering who can be trusted and relied upon. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus imparts a new commandment, love one another. So how should the church confront threats outside and within? The answer, at least in this text, directly is, is our shared love for each other. Now, Christ labels this a new commandment. However, we know that this is not new in the sense that it's never been heard of before. You, go, you can go all the way back to Moses in Leviticus 19.18 who said, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in what way then is this a new commandment? Well, I think the key is in what follows. Again, listen to what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. In other words, this love that we're to exhibit has been exemplified by Christ. This transformative revelation alters our perspective entirely. When we're faced with a decision about holding a grudge or offering forgiveness when wronged by a fellow believer, we should reflect on Christ's love for us. When we're contemplating whether to assist a brother or sister in need, we should consider Christ's love for us. And when we're tempted to malign or exploit a fellow believer, we should fix our gaze on Christ and consider the immense way that he loved us. He has extended forgiveness to us and served us selflessly. And so given his profound love for us, how could we not mirror that same love toward one another as he commands. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then John will echo this principle in his own epistle, 1 John 2, 9 through 11, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness 
and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Consequently, the ultimate outcome should be that the church, despite all the issues and inherent complexities, should become renowned for its love. Just as when Jesus wept for Lazarus and the observers remarked, see how he loved him, so too the unbelieving world should look upon us and exclaim, observe how those Christians love one another. Witness their capacity for forgiveness, care, and providing among those, among those who are in need. For Jesus emphasized, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in conclusion, during this interval between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the church will undeniably grapple with the presence of sin. It's, un it's, it's unavoidable. Some who associate with the visible church may not genuinely belong to Christ. And even those who truly do belong to Christ will face their own battles against sin within. As a community of believers, we are both strangers in this worldly system and imperfect individuals. Nonetheless, our path is to persist in Christ and practice love for one another. And that love is expressed by our keeping of his commandments, including the moral law toward God and toward one another. And so the answer to all that nonsense that I talked about earlier, the racial narratives, the Marxism, the promotion of the LGBTQ agenda, the dismissal of course, corporate worship, the answer is not to distort and twist love by conforming the concept of love to our sinful desires and lawless desires, but rather is to affirm and embrace love as God has defined it within his law, and as Christ demonstrated by his life. And so, yes, the answer is love. But it's love rightly understood in the light of God's word, in the light of his law. Let's pray.